Welcome to Polymathematics Institute. I am Paul, the Polymath. Welcome all trivia ninjas, dabblers, seekers of knowledge, skills collectors, and fellow polymaths. I want to share some life lessons today. Everyone can relate with lessons learned the hard way. I'm sure that someone out there has had some seminal moment where their memory of a particular event stuck with them and helped them to discover truths about the world they live in. Often these experiences can be traumatic. For that reason, I encourage listeners who are sensitive to intense situations to maybe skip this episode. I will also say that the experience I'm going to share with you today is true, or at least as true as I remember it. It's funny how our memory of an event can change with time. But for the happenings I will share today, I've repeated on a regular basis to those around me an attempt to preserve them as accurately as possible. These experiences shaped my learning and growth starting at a very young age. I'm going to share one of these in the finest detail I can remember in this podcast. But before I get to that, let me share a quick soundbite with you. You think I'm a replicant, don't you? Look, it's me with my mother. Yeah? Remember when you were six? You and your brother snuck into an empty building through a basement window. You were going to play doctor. He showed you his. And when it got to be your turn, you chickened and ran. Remember that? You ever tell anybody that? Your mother, Tyrell, anybody? Huh? You remember the spider that lived in a bush outside your window? Orange body, green legs. Watched her build a web all summer. Then one day there's a big egg in it. The egg hatched. The egg hatched? Yeah. And a hundred baby spiders came out. And they ate her. The implants. Those aren't your memories. They're somebody else's. They're Tyrell's nieces. In this scene from Blade Runner, Rick Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, is making Rachel aware that she is a replicant by pointing out that she has implanted memories. These common events are put into every replicant to give them a sense of personal history, but they are fake. I argue that the memories do much more than stabilize their personalities, but instead create a base for learning, a set of experiences to reference and build upon. Deeper than that, Memories are really what defines us. Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am. I would like to revise that, reframe it. How about, I remember, therefore I have been. When I was nine years old, I was like many boys of my age at that time, a Cub Scout. I went to weekly den meetings, earned merit badges, and had a subscription to a periodical entitled Boy's Life. In every edition, they would have a harrowing tale of a young man who would step up to do something truly heroic for neighbors and friends. I guess this experience and the stories in that magazine that spoke to me, something deep in me, a desire to do something truly great for my community, 
the value of selfless service, the idea that I could be responsible for saving someone's life made me believe in my core that I had a bigger purpose. I also had responsibilities to my family. One of the biggest ones was the annual gathering of firewood. One half of my boyhood home was heated by burning firewood. Firewood had to be obtained, and my parents, both being teachers, did not make enough money for us to buy firewood. So instead, every summer we would head to the mountains, often as a full family, but sometimes just my father and myself. We would cut cords of wood. Those of you unfamiliar with that measurement, a cord is a stack of cut split wood measuring four foot by four foot by eight foot in dimension. My father would wander deep into the woods to find dead standing trees. He would cut these down, trim the branches back to a stripped log, which then would be divided into four to eight foot lengths. My job was to haul these back from the forest and stack them next to the truck. From here, we would either cut them down further or carry them back stacked clear above the cab in a wooden rack my dad had made from a few snowmobile crates he had salvaged. The whole rig was supported by a 1962 Chevy truck that my dad had bought with 600,000 miles on it at a police auction in Denver for $50, adorned in various shades of white house paint that he would brush on to protect it from rusting. The taillights were covered in red theater gels taped over the bulbs where lenses once were. The engine was a straight six-cylinder with a three-speed transmission shifted off the steering column. There was a blue vinyl bench seat and air conditioning was supplied by a fly window on each side of the cab fastened in an oddly shaped chrome latch. We carried several five-gallon gas containers and three gallons of distilled water in the bed at all times. A cardboard box, saturated in oil, held the chainsaw sharpening tools that he would run off the truck's battery, popping up the hood and revealing a cavernous engine compartment almost empty without modern amenities, a couple of alligator clips, and he would just start sharpening the chainsaw. This was truly a utilitarian vehicle. My father would locate these great tree stands where brush fires had cleared the undergrowth or areas where dead standing tree wood was every fourth or fifth tree. We would be able to cut 50 plus cords a season. The majority was used to heat our home and the rest was sold to folks in Denver at $300 a cord. This was our extra money for vacations or the go-kart he bought my brother and I when I was 12 years old. My dad would let me drive the truck on these trips. I would push down the heavy clutch, which took my whole leg and sliding slightly underneath the steering wheel to get the clutch to release. I would then pull down and back, fitting it into first gear, and we would crawl around it about seven miles an hour up and down the hills, freeing my dad up to look into the forest, tracking his prey, medium diameter standing dead wood. To anybody listening now, you might find that seven mile an hour pace to be comical, but let me tell you, to me, it was super cool. I was a nine-year-old, not just being allowed to drive the truck, but I was responsible for driving the truck. The accelerator was so touchy, and that old straight six had so much torque that a very steady foot was required, and the steering wheel was huge. Because there was no power steering, the gear ratio on that steering wheel was also insanely low, meaning that driving with the thumbs on the outside of the wheel was a lesson learned quickly especially on heavy, rutted roads that were actually made with potholes, I think, when they made the road. My skill was limited, though. Although I could shift into higher gears, I was not able to do it reliably, and killing the truck meant flooding the engine, 
then waiting a long time while the carburetor worked itself out. That summer, my father found a brush fire along a ridge on the top of a mountain on Gore Pass, a lesser-known road that connects the Yampa River Valley to Middle Park. Named after an Irish baronet, Sir George Gore, who, according to The Trail of Tears, a book by Gloria Joda, scoured this area from 1855 to 1858, bent on the slaughter of game. He killed 2,000 buffalo, 2,000 deer, and 100 bears. An article I found from the Chateau Acantha out of Montana, dated December 1936, about him is linked in a PDF that can be found in my show notes below. The interesting thing about Gore Pass are the spurs that jut out into BLM land. And the population of Colorado could be found mainly in cities, not in the wild spaces. These spaces had not been yet ruined by droves of transplants, all moving here to own a piece of it. We would wind through the labyrinth of roads and forks till we came to the cut site. An epic view of the valley below with black soot stained soil and a newly green regrowth made the landscape sparse and surreal. A large grove of aspens sat on a spot somehow untouched by the fire on a hill further up and black sticks of scrub oak that had succumbed to the brush fire stood seven feet tall. The perfectly dead standing wood. Scrub oak is tiny and slow-growing. It's an incredibly dense wood. Three or four ten-inch logs and a dampened wood-burning stove or fireplace would heat half our house through the night. The downside to this wood is that it's incredibly hard on a saw blade, requiring constant resharpening. And it's also covered in soot. After a day of hauling it out and stacking it, I looked like a chimney sweep from Mary Poppins. Because of these reasons, Dad would typically cut through the scrub oak in the morning and then save the dead standing aspen until the end of the day. The aspen was softer, lighter, and much cleaner. On this day, we had spent the morning cutting through the scrub oak, and I was looking forward to getting some lighter, cleaner aspen in the late heat of the day. I was getting sunburned and tired and had stopped to step into the back of the truck and drink from one of the distilled water jugs that had now warmed in the sun. I stood in the back of the truck snacking on a cherry mash candy that I'd found melted in the wrapper in the glove compartment of the truck and drinking from a warm jug of water. I watched Dad up on the hill cutting a large aspen, probably 12 inches in circumference. He cut the wedge at the base and then finally finished the back cut the chainsaw filled the valley with its piercing tenor vibrato. The tree fell, and my dad just misjudged the angle of the cut. Apparently, it fell only one-third of its arch, the branches getting caught in a neighboring dead aspen tree of about the same size. Chainsaw idling in hand, my dad backed up, assessed the situation, and then walked over to the tree, now carrying the load from the other tree lodged against it like a tumbleweed caught against a fence. A pregnant pause now replaced the roar of the saw as my dad judged the angle of the new cut. He cut the base so that the two trees could fall together like dominoes. The back cut now complete, the two trees began to fall again, but the branches were too tangled and the two trees now held on to each other, bouncing as if they were on springs. Without another thought, he walked back to the first tree and gave them both a mighty shove. The trees lurched forward, and then the potential energy of the springs released, punching both back towards my dad. He ran. 
chainsaw still running and in hand, the trees falling directly towards him. He paused to look back just in time to see the top of the tree and all of its momentum crash onto his forehead. The chainsaw wound up and then all went silent. The entire forest went silent. I put the jug of water down and ran to help. I screamed, Dad, over and over as, as if I could somehow control the outcome with the will of my terror. As I approached, I saw him laying there underneath the tree, motionless. I went over and somehow, I know this seems impossible for a nine-year-old, but somehow I grabbed two of the branches and just lifted the tree off of him and up the hill about five feet. I leapt over and ran to him. He had a gash in his forehead that was absolutely gushing blood. The copper smell still sticks in my memory. I grabbed his arms and started pulling, and I pulled and pulled, and for what must have been like an hour, but I got him back to the truck and into the cab, still unconscious, but still bleeding. I took a t-shirt that I had planned on changing into after we'd finished cutting the wood. I cleaned the wound with the water in the jug and wrapped his head in the t-shirt. Then, being nine years old, I knew that he could not leave his valuable tools or his glasses. So I ran back up, grabbed the chainsaw, found his glasses, and returned to the truck. I put the keys in and began driving in first gear as fast as the engine would go. I knew the way back, but I had no concept of how far it was. I just knew I needed to get help. On the drive back to Hayden, my dad would temporarily regain consciousness. What's happening? It's okay, Dad. Is this the right road? I think so. Where are we going? To the hospital. On the highway, I was able to double our speed by taking a chance and successfully shifting into second gear. I have gone back and calculated the distance of that trip. I drove approximately 70 miles with a top speed of 25 miles an hour. I calculate it now to be a five-hour trip. We finally arrived at the hospital, and it was now late evening, getting dark. In Colorado in July, I know now that means about 8.30 at night. I ran in and told them what was happening in my frantic and now weary nine-year-old voice. They ran out and got my dad walked him into the hospital and put him in a wheelchair. Then I sat and waited. After another hour, the doctor came out and sat down and told me that I had saved my dad's life. It was at that point that I started to cry. We got home very late. My mom was waiting at the door. The hospital called her to let her know. My dad was weak but better. He needed over a quart of blood. The stitches were hidden underneath a large bandage, and the doctors had told me what a concussion was and that he would not feel well for a while. After a few weeks, my dad came to me and said he was writing a letter to Boy's Life to let them know that I was a hero. My dad said I was a hero. I just... Just think about that. My dad said I was a hero. 
that is so strange when your hero says that you are a hero. The months passed and my dad shrugged it off like so many things in his life. He was as tough as Captain Kirk. The universe tried to kill him and he bounced back even stronger. Then one evening at dinner, he told me that he'd received a note back from Boy's Life. They told him that they could not condone my actions because I was not of legal age to drive. Here was my opportunity to learn. The opportunity to gain wisdom. That opportunity was wasted on me. I did not put this puzzle piece into its proper place. I was super annoyed by it, but it just became another one of my stories, stories from my memories, memories that became part of me. What was the lesson? Well, the lesson was competence doesn't matter to anybody but you, and perhaps a few people that enjoy the results of your actions. Your accomplishments will go unnoticed. Your success is ignored. Our system here in the United States is set up to lift up people at a rate about as random as the lottery. I didn't learn, though, back then. I continued through life with the belief that I could make a difference. I believed that I could be a hero. I believed that if I honed my skills and had a deeper understanding of subjects, that I could be loved. I wanted to be that hero that everybody read about and lifted up. Not because of ego, but because my values told me that you needed to be a hero. And that in D&D terms, I had to be lawfully good. That by living my values, I might find happiness. This was all foolish, of course. After a career of living my values and believing that my selfless moral aptitude would light my path to a home of acceptance, I have received many more letters like those from Boy's Life. Nepotism through my teaching career pushed me down for the large part. I had objective successes, but nothing that was recognized by administration who were driven by nepotism and friend decisions. They ignored those successes. I've had business after business fail because I wanted to run them in an honest way, but that meant a competitive disadvantage to those with fewer scruples. In a way, it's sort of meta. My memories were trying to teach me something valuable about human society, and I ignored them because of my friendship with my values. My placement of ethics above personal desires, my nepotism of favoring my internal compass, to better ways of thriving in a society driven by greed and clever schemes. Also, maybe this is why I have a special connection with the movie Blade Runner. I struggle to do what is right in a world that lifts those with merits that are measured in beauty, predatory behaviors, dollars, or performative swagger. Like Rick Deckard, I have only figured out the puzzle pieces about the truth of my existence after going through an existential crisis and to emerge with some answers when my youth is gone, my years are numbered, and my career is at its end. My memories seem like tears in the rain. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. 
Attack ships on fire on the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten hours of gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears. 